0: dressed the history of fashion is a production of iheart radio with over 7 billion people in the world we all have one thing in common every day we all get dressed Welcome to Trust
1: the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear.
0: We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Well, welcome back, Dress listeners. Uh, today, we are very happy to share with you our penultimate episode or, or next to last episode covering our recent adventures in France. And one of the things that we did there, if you've already heard our Paris recap, is we spent an entire day with our fellow travelers at Versailles. I mean, come on, Cass, is there anything more splendorous in the minds of those of us who study fashion or study history or fashion history together than that specific period of unsurpassed artifice, extravagance, and excess that was the court of Versailles during the 18th century. I don't know, just say.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for better or worse, it really was a significant moment in fashion history and one that I have often fantasized about heading back to and checking out. And save for the extravagant art architecture and lavish decor which remains on partial and very controlled display for visitors who visit the Palace of Versailles today two major things that are lacking to truly experience what it would have been like to live at Versailles during the 18th century are one, Obviously, the French aristocracy are not there, modeling the opulent fashions of the day as they would have been worn in court. And two, the elaborate codes of etiquette which dictated their daily lives there. So those are things we are just going to have to imagine today. Today's episode is a bit of a primer, an intro, a one-on-one on fashion and etiquette at the Court of Versailles. And far from being only an aesthetic pursuit, Dress was this political game whereby sometimes what you wore was actually a matter of life or death.
0: Yes, and if that seems dramatic, it's because it was. (laughs) (laughs) Intended to be. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Fashion in France at that time was taken very seriously. And in the late 17th century, King Louis XIV's influential minister of state, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, declared, quote, Fashion is to France what the gold mines of Peru are to Spain.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that Colbert was not trying to say that fashion, like Spanish gold mining in Peru, was a colonial exploitive industry.
0: No, correct. But (laughs) but, but basically, speaking on behalf of the French government, Colbert equated the French fashion industry to a gold mine, you know, a veritable cash cow, but one that was like this sort of indefatigable source of income because— Fashion is, of course, ever-changing. It's a cycle of money that's being made. And with all of this money on the line, is it little wonder then that the fashion trades really did play an integral role in Louis XIV and Colbert's plan to strengthen the nation's economy and status as a superpower?
1: And people say fashion doesn't matter.
0: Ha! Right?
1: During the late 17th and throughout the 18th century, France's government implemented a plan to support and grow its fashion purveyors and makers. They even went so far as to offer fiscal enticements to elite artisans from other countries to immigrate to France. So basically, people were bringing their skills and their technical expertise with them. So in France, you had lacemakers, textile weavers, and dye masters who found a welcome home, and there was no better setting for showing off their luxury wares than the royal pageantry that was Versailles.
0: Originally built in the 1630s as a hunting lodge and expanded by Louis the Thirteenth into a chateau, it was really his son Louis the Fourteenth who masterminded his expansion into the palace as we more or less know it today. And major building works there began in the 1660s. And it's really interesting to note here that the expansion of Versailles. And also the government's official support of the fashion trades were projects that were established and executed concurrently. So, if you're wondering if that was the plan kind of all along, well, perhaps it was because the Sun King ended up naming Versailles the main residence of the French court. And when he did this, he put in place these very elaborate etiquette codes in which dress played no small part. So very generally
1: speaking, these codes of etiquette governed behavior at court, and many of them applied specifically to governing the behavior of the aristocracies, a.k.a. the courtiers who lived at court. So this complex system of rank dictated, for instance, who had the most access to the royal family, and this was in addition to, of course, the paid servants and staff who attended to daily operations of the 2,300-room palace. (laughs) Let's just stop and think about that. (laughs) Wow. So favored courtiers were bestowed with official titles and duties and salaries for the privilege to serve the royal family. They executed tasks like handing the king or queen a napkin.
0: (laughs) Yes. This is very important.
1: They stood by to refill their water and only water glasses when the public was invited to Versailles to watch the king and queen eat. Yes, pre-TV entertainment. So, (laughs) which face it, was probably super awkward for many parties involved, but most relevant to our topic today, courtiers even held official positions which involved helping their sovereigns get dressed.
0: Yes, and I'm sure many of you out there have seen Sofia Coppola's wonderful, beautiful, heartbreaking movie, Marie Antoinette, in which Kirsten Dunst plays Marie Antoinette. And there's this scene in which she is naked and cold as all of these women are entering the room and pass around her chemise undergarment. Well, this was an actual event described by one of her ladies-in-waiting, Madame Campan, in her memoirs. And it's this actually almost comical scene where the queen was standing there naked waiting for the specific person who was supposed to be entitled to hand her her undergarments and then somebody else who outranked her came in and then it had to be passed and this just kept happening around the room and like some of the servants that were in the room had to pass them to somebody else because it was like a question of rank and etiquette and and basically at the end of the whole scene the queen was like very annoyed and very fed up, and was like, how tiresome. And how (laughs) cold she was. Yeah. She's just
1: like standing there naked, waiting for people to hand her her chemise.
0: Yeah, and you can understand why she would be irritated, and, and not just with this particular incident, but all of these really incredibly elaborate rituals that were at court. One lady at court remarked during the early part of the queen's reign, quote, Marie Antoinette preferred the title of queen of fashion to that of queen of France. But uh, that statement might not necessarily be as watertight as it seems because she was not a big fan of court etiquette or how it often governed what she could wear.
1: Absolutely not. And dress listeners, as some of this court etiquette seems picky, finicky, restrictive, it's because it was intentionally designed to be that way. It was designed and implemented to keep the king's courtiers busy. The busier they were executing his daily dictates and routines, the less of a political threat he thought that they posed to his reign. So, for instance, some of Louis XIV's mandates included formalizing his grand levee or getting out of bed. He required the entire court to be present outside his chambers for the ceremony, which occurred behind closed doors. The entire court. And they couldn't even see it. And there was this additional petite levée ceremony wherein select favorite courtiers then entered the king's inner rooms to wait upon and dress him. And this is while everyone else is waiting outside, their access restricted from knowing or seeing anything that was happening.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and in some kind of funny way, Cass, I guess you could equate this to, like, when you go to a club and there's a velvet rope, right? Or <laughs> or the VIP rooms of today where you have to be tapped for special admission. You had to be a VIP to get into the king's inner chambers and help him get dressed. What an honor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, just to make all of this extra extra, there was also a similar ceremony for when the king went to bed, known as the Couché. So it's it's kind of like this whole process happened again and reverse, and and everybody and all these people were expected to show up. So, you know, it's no wonder that he was known as the Sun King, because really the court's entire schedule had him at the center of everything that they were doing, morning, noon, and night. And that's what these systems of etiquette were put in place for. So he could kind of keep tabs on them.
1: Having inherited their titles and family fortunes, a king's own courtiers were often his most likely challengers for the throne. And one way that French kings kept their courtiers' vast wealth in check was through, you guessed it, dress. So by setting this incredibly high standard in terms of expectations of what was to be worn at court, the monarch ensured that not only were potential political rivals depleting their personal funds in the pursuit of fashion, they were also patronizing French luxury purveyors, buying fine silks, laces, jewels, and other finery, really sending this infusion of cash straight into the country's economy. And this is one reason that wearing non French imported textiles or other fashion goods was really frowned upon at court. Buying French was viewed as a patriotic duty of the
0: French aristocracy. So let's get to the nitty gritty, shall we? What exactly was being worn at court during the 18th century? Well, Surprisingly, even though the pace of fashion quickened as the 18th century progressed, one visitor at the time noted in their diary that, quote, they invent every day new modes of dressing. Well, that being said, the actual types of garments worn more or less kind of stayed the same over the course of the 18th century. Men wore three-piece suits— And women largely wore sort of open front dresses that were paired with an outer petticoat or skirt. And I think we're going to elaborate on that a little bit, starting with the gentleman. Yes, so attire
1: for the aristocratic 18th century gentleman. What was it? Well, it was an habit francais comprised of three pieces, a vest or waistcoat, a coat, and breeches, which reached just below the knee. With a base layer, of course, of a long shirt or chemise, which they tucked neatly between the legs. No underwear necessary.
0: (laughs) People ask this all the time. Like, people always have questions about underwear.
1: I know. And you know what? I planned a two-part underwear episode, and it got usurped by my four-part, unexpectedly long (laughs) Olympic episode this summer. So I apologize. But it is on my list of episodes to write because it's a very fascinating topic. Yes. So... Men wearing drawers during the 18th century was not entirely unheard of, but it wasn't exactly typical either. So over this long shirt undergarment would be worn a pair of fall front breeches, so-called because of a front panel, which would fall open when unbuttoned at the sides. And these breeches, as mentioned, terminated just below the knee and were fastened with buttons, buckles, or a combination of both.
0: And just a small note here on knee breeches. um, Obviously, the breeches... If they terminated just below the knee, they were short, so they didn't cover the lower legs. So, knit stockings were worn, and because of the very nature of the knit, they hugged the calf. And so, I I just love this so much. It it was considered very alluring at this time to have well-formed calves, maybe even kind of sexy. So, some men chose to call attention to that general area of the calf by wearing diamond buckles to fasten their breeches at the bottom, you know, add a little bling down there to call attention to your (laughs) sexy calves. And then, of course, you have the flip side because not everybody is going to have that desired fullness in their lower leg. And some of these gentlemen chose to adopt calf pads to give the illusion of a, quote, well-turned calf. And this could be achieved by wearing stockings with calf pads already sewn into the stockings. And this is the best part of all of this. There are more than a few cute, anecdotes from around this era of mischievous children sneaking into dining rooms during dinner parties and crawling under the dining room table and using stick pins to prick the men's calves to see whose calves were real and whose were not. <laughs> and I, you
1: have to wonder, too, if people were, like, enticing children to go under the table and do that so they could see who was, yeah, in fact, absolutely. not wearing. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, I'm, str- I'm sure there was there was an instigator of sorts more than time or two. So
1: I'm actually glad you brought up the point of men wearing diamond jewelry in this manner, April, because as some of our listeners already know, the wearing of jewels, lace, floral motifs, and other style devices, well, I guess all of our listeners know this, right? It's, It's now largely gendered feminine, but this was not the case in the 18th century because floral pastels, jewels, sequins, bright colors, plush velvets, they were all part and parcel to the male aristocratic wardrobe. As were high heels, which is Mm -hmm. just such a wonderful snippet of fashion history, Louis XIV, of course, was renowned for high heels. We did a whole episode on the history of men in heels with Elizabeth Simmelhap, if you're interested in listening. But what's super interesting is that in Europe, men wore high heels before women. Yes, 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 (laughs) yes, yes, yes. And women were lampooned for wearing heels as wearing mannish attire in the 17th century. So it's super interesting. Heels, of course, are not a European invention. They arrived at Europe at the turn of the 17th century. There were hundreds of years prior in Western Asian countries and horseback riding cultures. But Louis XIV really took these heels to incredible heights. And it really was not until the post-revolutionary period that we see what has been referred to as the great male renunciation of decorative expression and
0: dress. Yeah, because loosely speaking, it really wouldn't be until the 19th century that we see this change in menswear kind of denouncing all of these quote-unquote what we think of now as feminine adornments and relegating those things like the, the the pastels and the florals and the diamonds and, you know, ultimately relegating that to, you know, this feminine sphere, I put that in quotes. And part of this all has to do with the French Revolution when the aristocracy or the Ancien Regime was toppled and all of a sudden their decadent displays of wealth and the clothing that was identified with them, it was literally during the Revolution Burned and ripped to shreds. And the aristocracy's clothing really kind of became a symbol of their elitism and tyranny.
1: Yeah, moving forward into the 19th century.
0: Yes. Okay. For our 18th century aristocratic lady, the process of dressing was a tad more complicated, but one of her main looks at the court of Versailles would have been, for the 18th century woman at court, would have been an open front gown, such as the robe a la Française or a robe a l'anglaise. And the difference between the two is really hard to tell from the front, front, but from the back, you automatically know which is which, because the Roe en Francaise has that really pleated waterfall effect, extending down from the center back, and the Roe en Glaze lacked that draping panel, and instead, the back was very kind of tailored and fitted and a woman would start her dressing process with a long linen chemise undergarment just like her gentleman counterparts then she would put on her knee-high knit stockings which would have been secured by tying a ribbon just above the knee no elastic here friends we got to secure them with something Um, and then she would have added a petticoat over her chemise before putting on her corset or stays as they would have been called at the time, because corset was not so much of a term that came into parlance until the early 19th century.
1: Which trust listeners, as promised for very many seasons, we're now in fourth season, right? So we've been promising an episode on the corset, and actually next week, we are going to be bringing you one, which Uh, you know, addresses some of these myths surrounding this controversial garment, which is the corset. And we will be busting these myths with corset maker extraordinaire Cynthia of Red Threaded, so I can't wait to share that episode with you. But we really have to remember during the 18th century, the undergarment known as stays was worn by most European and American women across the class spectrum. They were everyday garments and lacked the fetishized connotations some people attach to them today. They're really viewed as a utilitarian garment, which provided the necessary posture support while simultaneously shaping a woman's torso to the fashionable silhouette of any given era. In 18th century, stays tended to support the bosom from beneath. They pushed it up and out, a fact emphasized by low-cut necklines of the dresses of this period's So low, in fact, that an occasional nip slip was not unheard of, nor was it considered overtly sexual. Maybe a bit flirty, perhaps, but normal enough that it is seen drawn into fine art and even mass-produced fashion plates of the era.
0: Yeah. And I always love when you just come across an image from the 18th century where you're like, oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) But they're they're actually more common than you would suspect. So. Over her corset would have been tied a woman's panniers, which are also known as hoops, which were kind of these little basket-like structures that held out the very wide expanse of skirts of the era. Over her panniers, perhaps then the outer petticoat would be put on, and you can think of it more as a skirt, which either matched or contrasted the dress itself. Then the woman would add her stomacher, and a stomacher is this Stiffened triangle with usually a sort of fine fabric or decoration which faces out. Um, And it's very, very stiff. And the stomacher served the purpose of helping to close open gowns. And how that happened is the stomacher would have been generally pinned on with long stick pins to the corset itself. And this also being stiff, the corset itself, this protected the, the women from getting poked by all these pins that they were using.
1: And I also just want to say that that's one of my favorite pictures or images from the Kyoto fashion book that we're constantly referencing on the show is they just have these, this section of stomachers. and It's such an interesting garment to see or item of clothing to see on its own.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the fashions for stomachers themselves changed over time, too, which is also really like interesting. The shapes and the styles of decoration. So it's almost like this little microcosm of fashion history. Oh, for sure. So finally, one of the last pieces um, that a woman would be putting on was the dress itself, which is more like an open robe because it didn't meet in the front. It didn't close. And that is exactly why the stomacher is there. The center front front of the dress's bodice, the edges of it would be pinned to the stomacher to secure the robe-like dress to the body. And that is kind of like the icing on the cake, you know, covering this incredible understructure of all of these garments below.
1: Oh, yeah. And if this sounds time-consuming, it was. It was a lengthy process and one that for upper-class women usually required at least one extra pair of hands. Women without servants could certainly dress themselves in similar garments, and we highly recommend actually heading over to YouTube and checking out a video produced by past dress guest Lauren Stoll of American Duchess. She's getting herself dressed in 18th century attire, and actually there's a couple different videos, so it's super cool. Um, And we'll put a link in our show notes if you're interested. You'll note in that particular video that the corset she puts on is a front lacing corset. So she was actually able to lace herself in by herself. But generally speaking, you would probably get help from someone else when wearing back lacing corsets as they would have done at the Court of Versailles.
0: Yes. So while the types of garments worn, that like the silhouettes of the actual garments might be similar across class strata, you know, the corsets and the petticoats and, and the outer gowns, It's the materials of the garments in which they were made, that is definitely not the same across class data. And we cannot stress enough the importance of textiles in the 18th century. They could be incredibly valuable, given and received as gifts, and sometimes some of the more costly items that a person might own. Maybe not if you're an aristocrat, of course, because they're wearing tons of jewels and all these different things, but the point being is that clothing was highly, highly valued and not considered disposable. And, you know, even Marie Antoinette had some of her own dresses refashioned because the textiles themselves were so intrinsically valuable. And this plays a hand-in-hand with the wearing of those really wide panniers, right? Cass? Yes.
1: So one of the most distinctive features of 18th century dress is, of course, the panniers, which supported these incredibly wide skirts, which could be six feet across. The incredible volume of these silhouettes required copious amounts of fabric, breathtakingly expensive fabric in the case of court dress. And the silhouette was a status symbol to show off your means and monies. You had to be able to afford a lot of fabric.
0: Yeah, and this brings up uh, a different matter entirely of the hierarchy of formality in 18th century fashion. And today, you know, the time of day is often what dictates what is appropriate in terms of what you would wear for a given occasion, you know whether it was in the morning or whether it was in the afternoon or whether it was in the evening. But this was not necessarily so in the 18th century. It was more about not the time of day, but the formality of the occasion. So for instance, the same dress might be worn to a formal night out at the opera, just as it might be worn to an aristocratic wedding held very early on a Tuesday morning at church. (laughs) So it's really the formality of the occasion that governed dress, not what time it was on the clock.
1: At Versailles, official court ceremonies required formal court. Dress. So for men, this generally consisted of the finest of their habit francaise, frequently featuring mind-boggling, elaborate embroidery and perhaps trimmings of real gold or silver. And of course, it might be worth emphasizing that of course at this time everything is made by hand, no sewing machines. There are, of course, mechanized ways of making textiles, but it was all handmade. It all involved people pulling levers, etc. So just an incredible amount of work went into these garments. And then women's court dress had further specifications, which included tiers of lace at the end of the sleeves just below the elbow. These lace flounces were called engageants. Engageants weren't exclusively worn for court dress, but they were a required element. And another required element for full court dress was a long train descending from the center back. So in the 18th century, court dresses were almost, if not always, robe a la Française in silhouette.
0: Yeah, and actually, Cass, if you think about it, this parlay's all the way into the nineteenth century as well. That formality of the of the court dress and the train—we even saw it in Downton Abbey. Yeah, I was going to say, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that where we are right now kind of leads us nicely to where we might pick up at a later episode, which we should probably do an entire episode dedicated exclusively to Marie Antoinette. And so we might leave that for a later date. But I do want to mention here that even within court dress, um, which was worn by those with the right to appear at court in an official capacity, even when in that top tier of formality in terms of court dress, there were actually modes of dressing that were extremely, Exclusive to the royal family and to other specifically honored individuals. So, for instance, Cast the Sun King, Louis XIV, declared that the use of brocade fabrics belonged to himself, the princes of his family, and those of his subjects upon whom he might be pleased to bestow the privilege. And also, there were similar dictates surrounding the wearing of trimmings of silver and gold, as well as Louis XIV's signature. Les talons rouges, you know, you mentioned the high heels earlier. Well, these were special ones which had red high heels on them. And he first adopted these actually in the 17th century in 1654. And he later granted the privilege of wearing the talons rouge to select courtiers in his inner circle. So what about the women? While women of the
1: royal family were expected to wear the widest of panniers and quote-unquote honored to wear some of the most restricted of corsets known as the grand corps, described as quote, extremely bothersome and fatiguing, the highly inflexible grand corps, worn specifically by Marie Antoinette, was described by one of her ladies-in-waiting as quote, a specially made corset without shoulder straps, laced up on the back, just tight enough so that the lacing. Four fingers on the bottom allowed for a glimpse of a chemise of such fine batiste that it would be readily apparent to everyone if one's skin underneath was not sufficiently white. The front of the corset was laced, as it were, with rows of diamonds."
0: Yes, and there's quite a bit of primary source writing out there about um, the Grand Corps and some of these more restrictive forms that the women of the royal family wore, and everybody basically just talks again and again and again and again about, like, how horribly uncomfortable it was. So, basically, the higher your rank at court, the more r- uncomfortable you're honored to be. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that with that picture painted, we will leave off there today for our very brief snapshot of 18th century dress. There is so much more to say, Cass, that I think that we were on the trip. We were saying that we could literally spend an entire week doing a so-called kind of like advanced tour that kind of focused specifically and solely on 18th century Dress, But one of the main things, you know, that I just want to leave off here um, in the context of 18th century dress at Versailles is that, you know, fashion and dress were wielded as forms of social control and politicized as markers of class and status. And actually, as the century progresses, um, we see this question of what to wear become weaponized, and Marie Antoinette was frequently the subject of satirical and political cartoons at that time in the context of fashion, you know, because she was, after all, as has been written, quote, French fashion's brightest star and its unhappiest victim.
1: And if you'd like to learn more on that note, we have a few past episode suggestions for you. We, of course, just recently re aired our episode entitled Rose Bertin Fashion in the Reign of Marie Antoinette with Kimberly Crispin Campbell. And you can check that out for more on Marie Antoinette and her stylist, Rose Bertin. And as a follow up to that, if you haven't already, you might consider checking out our two part episode on fashion during the era of the French Revolution. Part one is entitled Fashion and Politics, the French Revolution. And part two is on the subcultural stylings of the post-revolutionary
0: it kids, the Encroyable and Marvieuse. That does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider where the power resides in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore.
1: And thank you as always to Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you soon.